Fighting continues in the eastern Donbass region. Russia is looking to potentially expand the war in a couple of different directions. Elections in France demonstrate the stability of the anti-Russian coalition in Europe, and Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov threatens World War III and potentially nuclear war. In other words, it's Tuesday, and we're talking about the conflict in Russia and Ukraine. Well, you may not be hearing this on a Tuesday, but the sentiment still holds. While a lot has changed over the past weekend, we continue to be monitoring a number of situations and waiting tensely for the next shoe to drop. I'm Dr. Nolte, and for Blind Politics, this is Eye on Ukraine. And welcome, podcast listeners, to our ongoing coverage of the war in Ukraine, Eye on Ukraine. I'm Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Please remember that you can find all of our content on the Robertson School of Government's Facebook and Instagram pages, as well as on the Facebook page of Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte, and that the views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of Regent University or the Robertson School. You can find us on your favorite podcast provider, and please give us a five-star rating if your podcast provider has a ratings system. A couple of things have happened recently that I figured it was worth us discussing in some detail. This will probably be a fairly quick tour, whirlwind tour of some developments that could have an impact on the war. The first of these is sort of the dog that didn't bark. There was a recent presidential election in France held over the weekend of the 24th. And the runoff was between incumbent French President Emmanuel Macron and his challenger Marine Le Pen. Le Pen was the head of the National Rally, which used to be the National Front, which is widely considered to be a far-right nationalist party, although Marine Le Pen has tried to mediate the image of the party from the sort of more overtly Nazi-oriented ethos the party had on her under her father, Jean-Marie Le Pen. What's significant about this is that Marine Le Pen was also widely considered, and I would say correctly considered, to have been possibly the most pro-Russian politician in France. Considered to be very close to Putin, considered to be very open to his particular sort of brand of politics, and this would have been potentially a serious blow to any kind of European unity in wake of Russia's aggression against Ukraine. What we have seen is that Germany is, in theory, still committed to all the things they're still committed to, but they have proven maybe a little bit less steadfast than we would have liked to see, than we would have hoped. And at the same time, France, the UK, and others have been sort of stepping up. Macron has been pretty adamant and consistent in his opposition to Putin, but has also wanted to maintain open ties to him. So Macron winning, and winning comfortably, not as comfortably as he did the last time the two of them faced off in a runoff, six years ago, but comfortably enough, indicates that France is, you know, among other things, still not ready for Marine Le Pen's brand of politics, although the National Front and its successor party, the National Rally, have done a little bit better every time. At some point, we're probably going to see them in government in France. It just, it seems like that's the direction that they're going. That being said, though, for now, Macron is still in place. And so if you are somebody who is uh, sort of skeptical of Russia and supportive of this sort of effort to contain what the Russians are doing, that is probably a positive thing from your perspective. 
second development is over this that same weekend it was leaked by a Russian general that the Russians had plans to invade Moldova. That's a country that's close to Ukraine, close to Russia as well. It has a breakaway region called Transnistria. That's a Russian breakaway region. There are already some Russian troops in that region. They as they've been sort of fomenting dissension among that Russian-speaking enclave within Moldova. Moldova is a majority ethnically Romanian, uh, I believe, or or uh, close close to that. This is significant for a couple of reasons. First of all, in order to create a land bridge over to Transnistria, the Russians would need to take a big chunk of eastern Ukraine they don't own yet. Basically, would require them to take most of the Black Sea coast of Ukraine. And so we can expect that, assuming they move beyond uh, Mariupol, their next big target, in, in the way that Kiev was a target before, their next big target is probably Odessa. You may remember from a previous podcast, I said Odessa could be a pivot point of the war. And that was a must-hold for Ukraine. Ukraine must hold Odessa, and Russia, to achieve its war aims, must take Odessa. So assuming that the, that the Russians are even able to get close to Odessa, that's going to be a pretty intense fight. And that seems to be the direction that things are headed if the Russians are successful. Now, it's it's been sort of a slog from what I can, we can tell in, in the Donbass thus far for them. You know, certainly this is not Blitzkrieg-style lightning warfare like we saw to, in some areas from them, from the Russians, that is, early in the war. But that doesn't mean that they can't continue to try to make gains. At the same time, in Moldova itself, there were some convenient and, let's just say, suspicious explosions that happened in, in that Transnistria region. That's an ethnically Russian region within Moldova. And the Ukrainians are indicating that this might be a Russian provocation, which the Russians would never do something like that, would they? So we are looking now at the possibility of a wider war, wider conflict, if Russia in some way decides to try to bring in a situation in Moldova. I don't know how they benefit from that, and, and you know the Russians trying to supply that and divide their forces and you know, also going to Moldova opens up a lot of strategic possibilities for the Ukrainians. And particularly if the Russians want to claim a bunch of territory from Ukraine as part of this war, one of the things that you will almost certainly see is some sort of insurgency backed by the pro-Western Ukrainian government, the, the legitimate government of Ukraine, as it would be at that point, some sort of insurgency against the Russian occupiers. And yeah, that idea of a land bridge that connecting Transnistria, there's an insurgent's dream there if the Russians were, were to be trying to move through there, if this ends up being sort of a long-term thing. So even if the Russians take it, can they hold it? Can they maintain it? Uh, it's not clear. But that is, it seems to be a direction that this conflict may end up going in the not-too-distant future. Moldova does not have the resources of Ukraine. It has a 10,000-person army. It's one of the poorest countries in Europe. If the Russians could get there, they could take Transnistria. This is not likely to be a Kiev situation. I mean, in, in hindsight, right, the Ukrainians doing better and fighting more effectively and, and all of that than everybody expected was pretty much baked into the case, but cake. But there's a huge difference between Ukraine, which had a 200,000-person army that had been trained and equipped by NATO, and Moldova, which has a very small army. And the folks in Transnistria haven't had the, shall we say, embittering experience with Putin, perhaps, that Donetsk and Luhansk have had. Speaking of embittering experiences, it is now coming out that Russia is trying to organize a referendum in the occupied city of Kherson, which is in uh, southern Ukraine, about establishing a Kherson People's Republic, very similar to Donetsk and Luhansk, but they're not able to find enough poll workers and they're not enough able to find enough officials willing to support this to make that referendum happen. They will probably eventually get some sort of fakey referendum, 
it would be pretty embarrassing if they lost it and had to stuff, stuff the ballots, which is kind of what I'm expecting at this point. But like, n even still, their things are not really going the way they had hoped. Allegations of more war crimes, allegations of more mass graves, this time in and around Mariupol, I'm seeing this this, uh, this afternoon, and claims that some of the civilians in the city were forced to actually dig those mass graves. So the Russian way of war that was active in Chechnya, it was to a certain extent present as well in Syria, is now being very made visible, made manifest to Western audience in ways that it hadn't been before. A lot of that has to do with access to social media and so on and so forth. And so that is just another aspect of what is going on. A couple more quick news hits for you relevant to this. War aims are starting to become clearer on the American side. We had General Mark Milley making an uncharacteristically open declaration that the war aim of everybody who's arming Ukraine is to weaken Russia. In one sense, this is pretty much common sense, right? It's pretty obvious that the war aim here is to weaken Russia. Not just to drive them out of Ukraine, but to make it so that they can't do this again. It seems like it would be obvious. But on the other hand, the fact that you have people that are, are coming out clearly saying this, and it's not sort of been denied or, or treated like a deniable effect or event is potentially significant. And of course, you have uh, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, who on Russian state television talked about how the risk of World War III is very serious and getting more real and putting all the blame on NATO for their actions in arming proxies, claiming this is a proxy war and that NATO, you, you know, essentially you better watch out and waving the nuclear saber, which was not received very well by Western audiences. So what does all of this mean in, long, in the long term? First of all, it seems like there's a disconnect between the Kremlin and events on the ground. They seem to, to be looking now for a way to salvage their war aims, but they're still too expansive. You know, they're still talking about expanding the war into Moldova, you know, creating chaos. And I think this is part of Putin's strategy that is not necessarily the most effective from a military perspective. When you're in intelligence, and Putin has an intelligence background, Sowing chaos for the sake of chaos and riding the chaos is a potentially successful strategy. And you never want to tell the left hand what the right hand is doing. And you can see military commanders who are very effective in operating in the fog of war and the chaos of war. The problem is people have to actually know what your strategy is and have a realistic conception of your capabilities and your strategy. And so confusion to the enemy is one thing. Confusion to your own side is another. It's not clear to me that whoever's making the strategic decisions in Russia has a 100% grasp on the circumstances on the ground. And what that means is they're often making bold pronouncements that don't necessarily track with the way things are working. So that's point number one. Point number two, the biggest danger for the Ukrainians is probably Western apathy. It seems like people are checking out, people are paying less close attention, people are paying attention to other things. That's even true in this podcast to a certain extent, just because things have kind of moved into a position where it's not as, as clear that major elements are, are happening and major things are happening. And a lot of what we did early on was sort of explaining the context. But we are moving into that kind of grinding aspect of the, of the war and of the conflict, where it's easy to sort of stop tracking the, the details of everything that's happening. And the challenge with that is that Western apathy then gives some of those Western leaders who might be more inclined to be dovish, uh, who might be inclined to not push Russia as hard, more leeway to do so. I'm not sure the Biden administration is exempt from that temptation. 
I'm certainly not sure the Germans are exempt from that temptation. So that is something that you would be concerned about if you're the Ukrainians. That being said, it's certainly not all roses from the Russian perspective in terms of timing. If they're going to have that claim of, of some sort of victory by May 9th, and I've heard in a couple of other sources, you know, that thing that I said in the last Eye on Ukraine podcast, that this is an important date for them. They need to show, be able to show some progress by then. It doesn't necessarily look like that is going to be possible at this point. It just does not seem like things have gone at all in the direction that they were expecting or hoping that they might go. And it's not clear the extent to which they can actually recover at this point. And so point number three is look for the Russians to try to distract, to cause some sort of provocation, to escalate with NATO in some ways, escalate to de-escalate, you know, maybe create some sort of incident in Moldova where they can claim this as a pretext and a justification to open up another front and just to sort of, you know, try to confuse the enemy and so on and so forth. The enemy, of course, from their perspective being the West. And so that's a very real possibility, although how they pull that off, I'm not entirely sure. Point number four. If this is in fact a proxy fight between Russia and NATO, it's it's not clear that things are going all that well from the Russian side. And it seems like the Russians know it. Recently in an article, Dan Hannon, who is a, a member of the European Parliament, or was a member of the European Parliament, he uh, also was a Brexiteer, so he's happy to no longer be a member of the European Parliament from Britain, told a joke. A Russian husband is uh, talking to his wife about the war and says, well, this is a proxy war between the Russians and, and NATO. Uh, and she says, well, what have the Russians lost? Well, they've lost, you know, fi- about 15,000 troops. The, uh, the head of the, uh, you know, the, the largest sh- uh, ship in the Black Sea f- uh, fleet and um, hundreds of thousands of dollars of equipment and so on and so forth. And she said, well, what has NATO lost? And he said, well, they haven't really gotten involved yet. So from that perspective, it has been a bit disproportionate. Now, what the Russians can take some comfort in is that outside of the NATO alliance plus Japan and some of the other democracies, Australia, etc., the sanctions regime has not impacted other countries. India has not joined the sanctions regime. China certainly is not joining the sanctions regime. Much of the developing world is not joining the sanctions regime, probably because they would like to buy some grain from Russia. Thank you very much. But the counterpoint to that counterpoint is that when you're talking about foreign direct investment, a big old chunk of the FDI that you need if you're a country like Russia is from those Western countries. And so, yes, they still have those relationships with the developing world, but, you know, it's it's not like Soviet Union days where they can just rely on that block of countries to be sufficient to keep their economy uh, humming. They are really more dependent on FDI from the, what we call Western bloc. Okay, so that is another aspect of this that has become clear. Last, in terms of nuclear war, I don't know that the likelihood of that has gone up appreciably. However, you do hear more people talking about the need for the Biden administration to deter a use of a tactical nuclear weapon in the event that Russia is losing the war with Ukraine. This is a good thing because it means that people are starting to think about that as a very real possibility in a twofold sense. One, thinking about the very real possibility that Ukraine could actually win the war on the ground. That seems possible. Two, thinking about the idea that if that eventuality looks likely, Putin could do some very dangerous things uh, and could try to escalate in some fairly dangerous ways. Right now, it's not clear how any of that is going to shake out, but it is positive that it seems like at least some folks in foreign policy circles are starting to think about and talk about those types of issues. What would be ideal, again, would be clear, credible, and consistent deterrence against any first use of a nuclear weapon by the Russians. 
and a preparation to impose significant enough pain if they do that no one else will think about that idea of using tactical nuclear weapons again in the future. But ideally, we would be focused on deterrence. So that is all I wanted to cover for this episode. I think this might be sort of the one of the shorter episodes that we've ha- we have, but you know the reality in terms of what's happening in Ukraine right now is that there's a lot of little things that are happening, a lot of little details that are are going on. It's good to sort of summarize them all, but right now the war is in a bit of a holding pattern. They're certainly fighting intensely in in the east, but unless there's either a major set, a setback or breakthrough, it's not 100% clear how that's going to play itself out. In the meantime, there's continued civilian suffering. There will continue to be refugees fleeing from Ukraine. There continues to be internal displacement within the country and you know, a significant amount of suffering. Oh, that reminds me. I read recently a discussion with one of Zelensky's economic advisors just talking about the, the economic costs of the war in Ukraine, which have been substantial. And they are certainly hoping to rebuild, but there's going to need to be an ongoing commitment of resources from the West in in doing so. And so that's just another thing to keep in mind. And with that being said, I think we really are uh, at the end of this brief episode. Please remember, you can rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. You can find us on all of the social media places mentioned at the beginning of this episode. And for Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte signing off with Eye on Ukraine. (music) 